0: Welcome to another episode of the Comics Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. This is your new Comics Wednesday episode for December 14th, 2022. A few books I'm going to talk about today that I've had a chance to check out. bit of a smaller week, not a, a ton of Marvel books this week. There are some uh, good independents. some I haven't had a chance to read yet, uh, but I'll certainly mention them. Um, also, as always, everybody, if you're looking for the reviews for the DC books, uh, those are on yesterday's DC Spotlight. There are spoilers, so be warned if you want to experience the books and the story beats and the plot lines yourself without anything spoiled. Read the books first, then go listen to Rocky from Comic Boom and I, uh, as always this Wednesday New Comics Wednesday episode will be spoiler free. Uh, also, today kicks off the 12 Days of the Comic Source as we're 12 days away from Christmas. So be sure you listen to the other episode that's out today, which is an interview with Jim from Bronzeville Comics, who is um, a YouTube creator who is funding this awesome hobby that we all have of collecting and reading comics by speculating on books, buying, selling, slabbing, that sort of thing. He got started during the pandemic when he had some extra time on his hands. He's a teacher. So he was working from home and uh, I love his channel. He's very down to earth. uh very open about um the process and the things he's looking for. So definitely give him a follow. Listen to the episode. Uh, it's it was, it was great to talk to Jim. I'm a big fan of uh, of what he does. So with that being said, let's go ahead and dive into the books for today. I'll kick it off with Two Dead to Die, a Simon Cross Thriller. This is written by Mark Guggenheim. Art is by Howard Chaykin, covers by Dave Johnson, colors by Yen Nitro, letters by Ken Brzenich. Uh There is an essay at the beginning from Mark Guggenheim. He talks about kind of the legacy of Simon Cross CAA, I have to admit to being ignorant of this title. Howard Chagin title, uh, the only Howard Chagin title I kind of knew from back in the day in the 80s was American Flag. Um, this was sort of similar to that in that Howard was a, a big part of it. Um, Simon Cross was, along with Jeffrey Harris, uh, his co-creator, uh, a very popular title, I guess, from a, a publisher called Phoenix Comics. And it may have been it was just a little bit before my time, maybe a little in the, more in the early 80s. You know, I, I was buying comics at, at the local 7 Eleven. There was no comic shop in, in town, so tougher to get my hands on independent style books. That being said, uh, Simon Cross was a very popular character, kind of a, a James Bond type character, but American, uh, worked for the CIA. And uh, I just encourage you to read that essay at the beginning of the book because uh, apparently every Simon Cross comic or adventure. Uh, ended with the phrase, Simon Cross will return. It's been three decades, apparently, and Simon Cross uh, has returned. So it's got Howard shaken art, as I mentioned, and it's, uh, Howard has not missed a step in terms of storytelling, uh, his visuals, his certain aesthetic. It's so clearly recognizable as his art. Very interesting. And the pacing from a uh, Guggenheim is very but Well done. Also, this is a, a one and done story. It's about 120 pages and there are a couple of backups and it's, this isn't going back in time and telling a story of Simon cross back when he was a, a super spy. Now this is 30 years have gone by for Simon cross as well. So uh, the world has sort of passed him by in a lot of ways. You know, he for lack of a better term is sort of a relic of the cold war and he's thrown into quote unquote, one last gig are there some cliches in the story? Yes. But rather than lessening the story or making it feel derivative or redundant, it it's actually nostalgic. It, it actually um, really fits the narrative that Howard and Mark are, are telling here. It's, it, it's sort of expected. You sort of see it coming. And rather than kind of rolling your eyes at least my reaction was well yeah that's there's some poetry there that's what's to be expected uh it's a little bit of a throwback you know um the bad guy that you know supposedly died many many years ago why wouldn't he come back why wouldn't you expect that why wouldn't you expect some of these twists and turns and and that sort of thing so i really enjoyed it um it it makes me want to seek out the old simon cross stories um and see kind of what it was like back then uh i imagine it might be a little more tongue-in-cheek a little more on the nose certainly time has gone by and um there's even characters in the story that that kind of reference that at one point they, they sort of talk about the threat being a threat from the past and when it comes to that you need somebody who is from the past to deal with it. And there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, I, I did mention there's a couple of backups. So apparently there were a few unreleased Simon Cross stories from back in the day that were written by Harris. And once Guggenheim found out about that, he, he wanted Harris, who has since passed away, unfortunately, to be a part of this book as well. Um, so I think that's really great. Uh, the backups, there's one called Death Spiral, that's written by Jeffrey Harris, as I said, uh, letters by Ken Brozenak, colors by Yen Nitro. The, the Death Spiral Story has art by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, which it doesn't get much better than that when it when it comes to to artwork. There's another one called Rivals for Affection, also by uh, Garcia Lopez. And then there's one called Jeep Trick that has art by the legendary Michael Golden. And then there's um, A Look Back by Howard Chaikin. Uh, and then finally another one by Guggenheim and Shaken. So it's great that there's four uh, previously unpublished works by Harris in this uh, Simon Cross works in this um, in this book as well as uh, a couple of stories by uh, Guggenheim and Shaken. So like I said, I really enjoyed it. It was really fun. I didn't know what to expect, but I I was really, uh, really impressed with it. So I do recommend uh, picking it up, especially if you're a uh, fan of things like James Bond. Uh, All right. Up next, we have the second chapter of dark web. It's a Spider-Man event that's going on right now. It's in amazing Spider-Man number 15. It's written by Zeb Wells. The art in this issue is handled by Ed McGuinness. Cliff Rathburn is the inker. Marcio Menez on colors. Joe Caramagna handles the letters. Um, Kind of interesting in terms of, of what this event is. There's been a, a lot of different subplots going on in Amazing Spider-Man. I've talked a little bit about maybe some of them going on too long. Uh, I did talk with Zeb Wells at the Los Angeles Comic-Con a few weeks ago, and hopefully we're going to have him on the show at some point. He's just really, really busy. Um, but he did mention to me that he he sort of wanted to reveal that mystery Uh, of what happened to Peter how why he's estranged from Mary Jane and and that sort of thing. But as with all things uh, under the umbrella of a big publisher, you're, you're sort of at the mercy of the publishing schedule. So when there's other events that cross over and you have to cross over into them and you have to shift things around, you're still trying to tell your story, but you're trying to fit it into the larger narrative. So it should be coming up in the first, I think quarter or third of next year, I think is what he said. Um, I have no clue. I didn't ask, didn't don't want to know what the mystery is, but I just wanted to know if it's going to be revealed soon. And and yeah, and yes it is. So um, that being said with this dark web event, it feels all in, um, in terms of those other plot lines and those other story threads aren't really being explored. Pete's too busy dealing with the insanity of uh, what dark web is. And if you're not familiar with what's going on, so um, the goblin queen, Madeline Pryor, who's a clone of Jean Grey, she doesn't get along with the other mutants for obvious reasons. She's a clone of Jean Grey. Um, And so she's not really fitting in on Krakoa. And apparently magic, Ileana Rasputin, thought it would be a good idea to help Madeline Pryor continue to rehabilitate herself by sending her to be the queen of limbo, taking magic spot. Um, uh, Goblin Queen is not, Reformed at all, and she teams up with Ben Riley, who's now known as Chasm, who has his own wishes for revenge, um, just like uh, Madeline Pryor's a clone of Jean Grey. Ben Riley's a clone of Peter Parker. They both have, I'll say, issues with the person they're cloned from, and so they have a lot in common, and they've decided to team up. And this version of Ben Riley, I'm not a big fan of. Um, I get what Zeb's trying to do. I just sort of feel like. When you're talking about who Peter Parker is, even if it's a clone, having him do these evil things is just out of character. And I get it, right? Like he's missing a bunch of his memories, but I still feel like there's a core of Peter that just wouldn't go along with this. Um, But he's an out-and-out bad guy right now. And I also don't really care for his look visually. But regardless of whether I like it or not, this is the story that's being told. And the question is, is it being told well? So other than not really having room for any of the subplots, and so all that's kind of on the back burner right now, the story is well-paced and there's a lot of action. Um, I've said a lot of times that I'm not the biggest fan of like horror and magic kind of stuff, magical horror, or just straight up magic, whether it's on the DC side or Marvel or Independent or what have you. um, Because it's too easy to write yourself into a corner and then just go, oh, Doctor Strange shows up or Zatanna or whomever, right? And snap their fingers. Oh, magic, it's solved. Um, I'm not saying that Zub's going to do that, but that potential is always there. So this is like another Inferno, the uh, mutant event way back in the day when New York City was infested with demons. And it's even referenced within the book. A lot of people are talking about, it's like Inferno, mailboxes are coming to life and trying to eat people and whatnot. So there is that, and at least they acknowledge it. Um, the story is sort of interesting, but again, the le to me, the least interesting part is Ben Riley as chasm. I sort of wish they'd chosen someone else. I don't know. Maybe I'm just too soft on Ben Riley and I, I don't like seeing him as the bad guy. Um, also it's one of those things where does everybody that Peter Parker know, knows like have to become a, a powered, you know, supervillain or superhero. It's just one of those things, right? Like, Stories go on long enough, everybody in their orbit eventually gets powers. It just just doesn't make sense. There's so many in the Marvel Universe that don't have powers. Like more people, more persons that live in the world of the Marvel Universe don't have powers that then do. But I suppose that with all the weird stuff in the orbit and the um, day-to-day lives of these heroes, it's more likely that someone they know would have powers. But I say all that to say Peter or uh, Ben's girlfriend getting powers is also – you know, this Hollow's Eve type character, it feels a little, I don't know. Like, I don't know that I'm a fan of it. Um Janine Godby as Hollow's Eve. Eh, I don't know. Maybe it's just because she has magical powers. I don't know. But her and Ben are not on the side of angels right now. Uh, Venom also attacks this issue and Pete's in over his head. And whether the X-Men are going to help or not, I suppose we can talk about that as well, because there's also this week, Dark Web, X-Men number one. And this event goes through February. So we got a lot long ways to go. And like I said, um, if, if the issues of Amazing Spider-Man are going to be this fast-paced and action-packed, it's going to feel like it goes pretty quickly. But at the same time, all the other subplots, it seems like, are going to be on the back burner. So I have mixed feelings about that. I like that this event is so big and so kind of overwhelming that it's kind of forcing itself to the forefront in Pete's life. But I do also like those other subplots that were going on. So we'll see how that all plays out um, in the long run. Uh, All right. Up next we have from image comics, 10,000 black feathers. Number four from writer, Jeff Lemire art is by Andrea, Andrea Sorrentino, Dave Stewart on colors, Steve ones on letters. Uh, This is from their, um, was a Bone Orchard imprint, and you know Eisner winning team here that brought us Gideon Falls. It's a story about um, a young girl whose sort of junior elementary school, junior high, high school friend went missing way back in the day. She went off to college, um, even though she was distraught about her her friend being missing. She she couldn't handle the loss. She got accepted to a college, went to a college, she became a very famous novelist, and now she's felt compelled to come back. And she seems to have a connection to what's going on. Uh, There seems to be some horrific entity that maybe is behind the um, abduction of her friend from way back in the day, but this entity that's made of crows or crow feathers. But what's interesting is one of the things that this woman used to do is – uh, along with her friend, um, she used to. They used to make up stories, almost like creating this world, this dungeon and, and dragon-like world, and this this creature, this entity that has taken the girl. Uh, it seems like they're the ones that created it. Which, how is that possible? Like that's sort of. The mystery behind it. And so, again, she's come back and she's she's looking for her friend that's missing, Jackie. And um, she's even taken it upon herself to talk to the one suspect they had back in the day who was eventually cleared by eyewitnesses. And then that guy turns up dead later on. And so then the police go to the writer. Her name is Trish. And they're just you know saying, hey, we think you killed him. And you know, so now she's embroiled in that. And how this all is going to shake out, we we don't know. It's very much a mystery, but it seems like tr- whatever Trish and Jackie did, whatever make-believe stories they did somehow have come to life or they have power or they tapped into something um, powerful and terrifying. And whether or not Jackie's still alive, we don't know. What is Trish, Trish's connection? Because she's hearing voices. She's he- Now that she's back, she's hearing this entity talk to her and uh, how it's all going to play out. Uh, we have no idea, but Gideon Falls had sort of a central mystery as well. There, are, uh, there are some similarities to the story, and I love that one so much. I'm really enjoying this as well. Um, the other thing, and I've talked about this when I've reviewed past uh, issues, is how much of the characterization for Jackie and Trish we've gotten from Lemire through the interaction of the two characters themselves. Um, and we do see some of Jackie here, even though she's uh, missing. We, you know, there's flashbacks. Um, as there have been throughout to back when these girls were still in high school. Um, and it's just, it's really smart writing and the Sorrentino art is, uh, is tone perfect for, for the story they're telling. So again, another book that I uh, I highly recommend. Uh, speaking of great books and horror, we have the third issue of dark ride from writer, Joshua Williamson. Andre Bresnan is co-creator and artist. Adriana Lucas on colors, Pat Brosell on letters, um, so the, the the character that we met in the first issue, who was a big horror fan and got a job at the 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 hell theme park, and you know we saw kind of be attacked at the end or go missing. Um, his sister Summer we met last issue, and she's an investigative reporter, and she's looking for her brother that went missing. And in this particular issue, she's finally starting to make some progress toward trying to find her brother, Owen. Um, and there's a bit of a cliffhanger at the end that we'll see where it leads. In the meantime, the son and daughter of the guy who created the park, who we know made some sort of d- deal with, um, evil entities. They've got their own marching orders from their father, who's like a hundred at this point and. It, Horror and the theme park and it's horror themes are sort of losing their power. They're losing their ability to attract people. Um, and so from the business perspective, the son is, he's trying to, you know, he looks at it in terms of black and white, like monetarily, right? Sam Hain. And he's just trying to, be successful and make his father proud of him. And what he doesn't realize is, is the supernatural origins behind the the theme park. So their father is um, Halloween is his sister. Uh, The father is still pulling the strings and still has some sort of connection to some sort of evil. I don't know if it's the devil or Satan or or what have you, but this, this deal with the devil that he made. Um, And so if there's fewer people coming into the park, he's probably not fulfilling whatever it is that he's got to to bring. You know, whatever payment he's supposed to be bringing. Um, and so th- this background, this you know Disneyland version of a horror theme park, um, with all these different characters with different motivations and different levels of understanding. It's really, really interesting, and having Summer, this investigative journalist, as our POV character, as she's searching for her brother Owen, is also interesting because when the series started, you kind of got the feeling that Owen was going to be the main protagonist, but now it's clearly Summer, his sister, who's looking, and you sort of think that Sam Hain and or Halloween, you know, may be a antagonist, but at the same time. They're not aware of the supernatural dealings that their father has had, and so you wonder if they might not, once they learn of it, be on Summerside. So there's there's a it's a, a very much a political book in a lot of ways with this background of horror. And first issue was great setup introducing the world. Second issue. We got a little deeper into the origins of the park and kind of setting the the, the tone and, and realizing that the father was still around and sort of evil and a lot of menace. And now with this third issue, I feel like it's a little transitional. We're learning more about the supporting characters and where it goes from here. I have no clue. That's one of the other things that's great. Like sometimes you read a series and you have no idea where it's going and it, it can be frustrating. Um, this is not that. This is... Not sure where it's going, but the characterization and the interaction and the central mysteries are so interesting. It's very, it's a very compelling read. So rather than feeling lost, you feel, you know, kind of swept up in the mystery. Again, having Summers that POV character, she's trying to figure out what the heck's going on. And we as readers are along for the ride because we can't wait to find out what the heck's going on as well. So, uh, super impressed with what, uh, Joshua Williamson is doing in that book and, I highly recommend it. So, I mentioned this one earlier. I'm going to talk about uh, X Men Dark Web number one next, or Dark Web X Men number one, written by Jerry Dugan. Rod Reese is the artist, Corey Petit on letters. Um, This is basically New York has gone crazy, like I mentioned, Um, Inferno Part Two, if you will. And we've got. The mutants who happen to be in the city trying to do their best to uh, to help out and protect humans. So we've got Cyclops, we've got Jean Grey, we've got Iceman, we've got Firestar, we've got Havoc and, and Forge as well. And basically what happens is they decide to split up. Once they realize that Madeline Pryor is probably behind this, Magic takes Havoc and Cyclops and Jean Grey and goes to Limbo leaving Firestar and Forge and Iceman to um, to kind of protect New York City. Forge is sort of off on his own using his tech to fight against the demons, which leads Iceman, Firestar, and Spider-Man to team up because Spider-Man shows up as well. And for any children of the 80s, superhero Marvel fans especially, you'll remember that Spider-Man and Firestar and Iceman were Spider-Man's amazing friends, Saturday morning cartoons, Uh, and I loved that show. It was pretty much the only – time I got to see those characters outside of comic books and it was a cartoon and it was awesome. And you had people like the green goblin show up or Submariner or um, the chameleon. There was even uh, an episode with like captain America and it was just awesome. It was so, it was so fun. So Jerry Dugan clearly a fan and remembers that cartoon from back in the day as well, because we get some homages to it. They even make some tongue in cheek remarks. And as Spider Man ends up leaving, uh, when they're fighting this, they're fighting this iconic part of New York around Christmas. And that's all I'll say because I don't want to ruin it. But even when uh, they finally sort of win, Spider Man flies off and says, um, all right, good luck, X Men. take it from me. Don't get cloned. And that's one to grow on, my amazing friends. <laughs> so, uh, clearly tongue in cheek and clearly, uh, again, reminiscent of uh, that awesome cartoon back in the day. Meanwhile, things don't exactly go well for the uh, the team of X-Men that go uh, to Limbo to try to confront Madeline Pryor. So how much the X-Men have to do with this event going forward, we'll have to see. Um, they're kind of not in the best place when this issue ends. So we'll see how that plays out in, uh, in upcoming parts of uh, of Dark Web. Uh, okay. Up next, Hell to Pay number two, The Shrouded College book one, Charles Souls, the writer, Will Sliney on art, Rochelle Rosenberg on colors, Chris Crank on letters. Man, this book is so good. So the premise is there are actual coins that are minted in hell and they, um, they're the currency of the realm. Like if you want something in hell, you have to use these coins, um, and you can purchase them. And so somebody was able to sneak out of hell. Uh, and bring a stash of these coins to Earth, and they're objects of great power. If you have one, you can basically sp- give it to a demon, like spend it to get the demon to to perform a, a duty for you, almost like a wish, right? Like having one wish. Um, and so this shrouded college organization. Uh, we don't even know if they're necessarily on the side of angels, but they're aware of these coins and they want them. Uh, they're, they're too powerful to be in the hands of humans. And so we meet um, Maya and Sebastian in the first issue. And they've, they've been in, a I think it was a car accident, if I remember correctly. Um, and Seb's lost his legs and Maya's blind and she has a lot of damage to her face. Um, and they agree. The Shrouded College approaches them and they agree to be completely healed in exchange for having this task put forth to them by the Shrouded College. And that task is to collect all 666 of these coins, Quarok coins, they're called. And so in the first issue, they obtain what they believe to be the 666th coin. And again, these coins are a lot of times in the possession of the, you know, the super rich and powerful because they're the only ones can afford them. Um And what happens is they go to this particular guy and they, they find his coin, but they find two because they're, they're like, it's either in this like basement vault or it's in his bedroom safe and they split up and they each go and there's only supposed to be one coin left. They've already collected 665 of them and they both come back with a coin. So which is, which is the, the real 666 coin. They go to the shrouded college and they've got to admit to them that, yeah, they, they, got all 666, but perhaps there are more like what's going on. That's sort of the mystery um, and their their task is not complete. So that's where this issue picks up. It's fast paced. They are sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place because they feel like they fulfilled their obligation and paid their debt to the shrouded college. And they want to be released as per their agreement. But the shrouded college is like, you know, by the letter of the law, you're you were charged with obtaining all the coins are clearly coins left on earth. So you're not done. So there's some political machinations there and there's some other stuff going on that I won't, I won't mention at all, but uh, it's fast paced and it's a lot of fun. And the world that uh, soul and sliny and Rosenberg have created uh, feels very fleshed out and very big. And, they're exploring capitalism and money and greed and a lot of those fun ideas, but that's all sort of the story is so fun and the artwork so fantastic. The colors are great. You get pulled in and you don't even realize those things that are necessarily being explored until, at least I didn't, until I, I was reading the essay in the back. And I was like, oh yeah, I mean, I probably would have thought about it as I often do, you know, days after I've read the comic, I go over it in my mind and think, you know, what what are some of the ideas and themes that are being explored? Um, So I love that idea. Plus, it seems like there are multiple stories they have to tell in this uh, world because in in Charles and Will's essay in the back, they say they're planning seven stories in the world, seven books of the Shrouded College. Um, So it seems like the story of Seb and Maya is only the first one. But I I love this series. This is probably my favorite thing Charles Soule has done. Um, since Letter 44. Well, this along with um, 8 Billion Genies, that, that's a fantastic series as well. Uh, but this is just fantastic. It's so much fun. Um, and like I said, the art is uh, is really fantastic. So uh, highest possible recommendation for that. Up next, we have a new number one for Iron Man, Invincible Iron Man, written by Jerry Dugan. Juan Guerra is the artist, Brian Valenza on colors, Joe Caramani on letters. Uh, kind of picking up where... Christopher Cantwell's run left off and there are mentions to some of the things uh, that Cantwell did in terms of Tony kind of being broke right now after spending his huge fortune to buy up a bunch of weapons. Um, so Tony's kind of alone. Um, this is a Tony Stark book, not an Iron Man book, uh, much like Cantwell's is. And Tony's got somebody gunning for him and he doesn't know who it is. And I've talked so much about what I loved when Cantwell was writing it about how he, he sort of broke Tony down to build him back up. I don't know that he built him back up completely. Um, that would be a question for Chris. Um, but it's interesting to, to think about because when we meet Tony here, he's he's clearly not in the best place, um, like mentally or kind of socially, if that makes sense. He's, he's estranged. He's alone. He's still dealing with trauma. He's still dealing with the fact that he's Tony Stark. This isn't the happy, go-lucky, self-deprecating Robert Downey Jr. Tony Stark that we've seen so often. Um, this is this is a different version of of Tony, much more similar to the Cantwell version. And so I love that. I love that Jerry uh is just picking up where Christopher Cantwell left off and not shifting to like this super heroic Tony that has it all together and you know, globe trotting Tony and and what have you. It's still, it's still Tony with his flaws and his weaknesses very close to the surface. Um, so I'm really curious to see where this goes. The Figuera art is um, it suits the, the tone and the color work as well suits the tone. Uh, Cause th- this book is a little morose, which again, that that's sort of where Christopher Cantwell left Tony. And so it makes uh, a lot of sense. There's plenty of action in this. Don't get me wrong. Um but yeah, Tony's still clearly damaged and still trying to to build himself back up from kind of the lows that he had um during the Cantwell run, being addicted to to morphine and and whatnot. So uh fantastic. I'm mean, I'm so happy. Jerry Dugan is a writer whose work I really enjoy. I loved his Omega Hulk run back in the day. Uh obviously he's done tons of work on the X-Men and now he's taken on Iron Man. So happy to see that. Uh okay, up next we have Love Everlasting. Issue number five, it's from writer Tom King. Elsa Chartier is the artist, Matt Hollingsworth on colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. Um, Story about Joan Peterson, who's sort of trapped in these romance novels, very meta, uh, romance comics, I should say. And this one's a bit different. She, you know, doesn't wake up or doesn't start off on the first page as – being the, the star of another romance comic with some um, strapping young man proposing marriage and, and, you know, wanting to, uh, to be with her. Um, and so I appreciated that uh, so, because it's something different than what we've seen before. And you sort of get the idea that we're going to get some, some answers and even Joan herself is thinking that she's going to get, get some answers, but it's a Tom King book. So of course there's twists and turns and things sort of get, Thrown on their head, but um in a way, I was like, "Okay, we're gonna finally gonna understand what's going on. Why is Joan trapped in these romance comics and just one after the other after the other?" But then there was a part of me that was like, "Is it too soon?" I'm, so, I'm such a hypocrite, right? I'm talking about Amazing Spider-Man not giving us the answers to mystery soon enough, and then with Love Everlasting, I'm wanting the mystery to last longer. um But I'm just worried that that central conceit—if um, you reveal it already then the feeling of being trapped, that feeling of desperation, of hopelessness for Joan, um, it's going to go away, right? Once she she has the answers, or or at least it might go away somewhat in terms of it might help her to escape this endless cycle that she's in. And so I, I sort of feel like it needs to go on a little longer. She's getting pretty desperate, um, but she still has a lot of fire to her. And it's not it's not to the level of being horrific, you know, like if you're reliving the same day over and over and over, you know, think of groundhog day at some point, you just kind of give up, right? Like just, this is never going to end. I don't know how to fix it. And I'm just going to give up. Um, and she's not to that point yet. She still has a lot of fire in her. So will she get to that point? I don't know. Um, but this, this issue was very different than what's come before. Uh, but just when you think you're going to get answers, like I said, um, King and Chartier throw a, a curveball at you. So, very curious to see what's going to happen in with that series in the long run. So, I guess we'll see. Uh, I don't know if the next book is an ongoing. It's from Marvel. So, it's a number one. It certainly has going to be more than one issue, but it doesn't say it's a limited series, but Marvel rarely does now. It's Monica Rambeau Photon. It's written by Eve L. Ewing, if that name sounds familiar. She was the one that wrote the Ironheart series. Uh, the art is by Luca Moresca with even uh, Fiorelli. Carlos Lopez on colors. The main, uh, main covers by Lucas Warnock, and it's beautiful. Uh, I, I wasn't the biggest fan of Monica Rambeau. Captain Marvel back in the day. Part of it was because Captain Marvel, my Captain Marvel, was um, Marvel, right? The Kree. And it just bugged me that there was this other character that was using the name. Now she goes by Photon, and, and we have somebody else using Captain Marvel. But, you know, Carol Danvers is much closer to, to who Marvel was. But anyway, um, this is a really good series for somebody that's not that familiar with Monica Rambo. Um, and who she is and what she's been through are being very well uh being explored very well by uh Evil Ewing in this first issue. Um there's a lot of references to her past, the decisions she's made, who she's been. She was a leader of the Avengers at one point. Um but I wouldn't say there's been a definitive run on her. Um she's sort of just all things to all people, you know, that that person you can always call on and rely on and and when you define her by how others perceive her or the way others use her and i don't mean use her um you know like in a manipulative sense but just the way the other heroes and characters of the marvel universe see her she she's always been defined by her role and and how she has supported others and put others before her so who who is she in a vacuum i guess is what i'm saying and it it seems like that's the direction that Eve L. Ewing is going to be exploring. And I really, really enjoy that. The art is also really fantastic, very brightly colored, which gives um a traditional superhero feel as I talk about all the time. So not sure where this is going, but I'm finding myself liking Monica Rambeau so much more after just this one issue. So I know she's a favorite of a lot of a lot of people around my my age that love that Avengers run. I just I don't know, she never I never connected with her. But I feel like she's more relatable even after uh, only one issue here. So, uh, again, uh, a book I recommend. Uh, up next, Radiant Black number 20, written by Kyle Higgins. Marcelo Costa is the artist. Rod Fernandez on colors. Becca Carey on letters. I should say Rod uh, Fernandez is color assist. Um, we saw last issue that one of the existence robots showed up. So we have Radiant Pink as well as uh, Radiant Black, Marshall, and Nathan fighting against um, – the robot in this particular issue, and they even have to go get some help of, of um, some other radiants to figure it out. Uh, whether or not they defeat it, I'll leave that alone for now. But the bigger implications and what they're talking about toward the end of the issue is: does this one robot did it just stray off course? Is there more coming? You know, we've heard this rumor that um, there's a big force of these robots coming to Earth who's behind them, why, the mystery of where the Radiants come from, all that is still being explored. But at the end of the day, um, this is like Power Rangers on steroids, right? It's a t- Even though it's just focusing on Radiant Black, a lot of the other Radiants constantly show up. It feels a little bit like a teen book at times. Um, so many other characters in the massive sh- uh show up, but it's always big and bombastic and over the top. Uh, when it's not being like super emotional. And I feel like it's been a while since we've had Kyle Higgins and team throw us a, a curveball. It feels like every four or five issues, they throw us a big curveball, whether it was Marshall dying or, um, them, uh, Marshall and Nathan being able to share the powers. Or, uh, I think I said Marshall dying. Nathan was the one that all, almost died. We, th- we thought he was dead. Um, so I feel like that's probably, good. we're probably due for a really emotional, um, curveball issue coming up pretty soon um but i love the world building that's being done here and we're still on earth we haven't even got out into space yet it feels like that could be a, a thing as well so again great world building um so right from the start a lot of people were comparing radiant black to invincible and that that continues to be a very apt comparison you know invincible was a A great story that balanced character versus kind of action, traditional superhero world building, getting introduced to new villains and all that sort of thing. So, um, you, everybody should, I say that to say everybody should be reading Radiant Black and as sort of a secondary thing, like a lot of those early invincible issues are worth a lot of money because not a lot of people were on board. That could easily happen with Radiant Black as well. So again, highly encourage people to be, uh, picking the book up. All right. Last book I'm going to talk about in detail from Image Starhenge, book one, The Dragon and the Boar, written, illustrated, and lettered by Liam Sharp. The pages, uh, the illustrations for pages 18 and 19 by his daughter, Matilda McCormick Sharp. Um, man, this is such a fantastic book. And we know we're going to get a book too, but I sure hope a lot of people uh, pick this up in the collected edition, which is going to be coming, I think, in January. Uh, or pick, I mean, buy all six books. Uh, single issues then you don't even have to wait because this is a fantastic story and i've I've talked about it a lot it's the it's a story that spans generations millions of years going back to the earliest days of britain even some prehistory and then far far in the future and it's mixing all these fantastic ideas and things that uh, the creator liam sharp loves right like um, futuristic science cyborgs and his heritage as uh, an Englishman with King Arthur and uh, all the Arthurian legends. And the world that he's building and the story that he's telling has its roots in so much lore, um, especially Western lore of Western civilization, war of uh, lore of England in particular, in terms of saying, okay, why is the weather like even things like the weather, why is the weather in England? Like the way that it is, why is it, dreary and misty and rainy, you know, certain parts um, of England. And he, he, he like explains that he uses things that happen in the story and legend and, and epic battles to explain that. And it's fantastic. And he's not above poking fun at himself either, because one of the main characters here, Amber, who we know is, has these powers and is sort of connected to this long timeline of this Eternal war and people going back and trying to manipulate time, she's also an artist herself, and the way she expresses herself and and kind of tells her story is is by creating a comic, right so very meta and she even pokes fun at herself talking about how you know terrible the comic is and this and that, and so it's that irreverence I've talked about this a lot as well it's the irreverence and the tone that amber brings to the book as the narrator that keeps this from feeling like over the top and pretentious. Um And when you, you pair that up with Liam's art, which he's using several of his styles that he's uh, capable of here, especially his, his sort of fantasy painting style that has, he's really used a lot over the last uh, few projects. And it, it just gives the book again, this epic feel, this beautiful flow And it's just gorgeous. Like the imagery, the symbology, uh, it's one of those books that's rereadable because you can go back. Like I plan on going back and and rereading all of it now that all six issues of the first volume are out. And I'm probably going to reread it several times before book two comes out. Because again, there's so much here and it makes me want to like sit down with Liam over, uh, you know, a glass of whiskey or scotch and just like, I, again, I don't want to be spoiled, but hey, what what are what are the meanings here? It may, it may be a conversation I have to have, like after all three books are out, right? And the story's told, and be to be able to go back and explore, because again, there's so much here. You can only fit so much into a you know thirty page comic or what have you. Um, but the subtext and and everything that that's being built is amazing, and it's incredible, and it's impressive. But when you add in the gorgeous art. Uh, it's just amazing. Like I would buy this book just for the art, like even if there was no story because the art is, is amazing. And so I can't recommend it highly enough. Definitely pick it up, pick up all six issues. If you haven't picked up any of them, all six are out now. You can read it in one, read one sitting or pre-order the the trade so you can, uh, sit down and and enjoy it in a nice package. So, uh, all right, let me talk about a few of the other books that are going to be out today. Uh, from Bad Idea, They're All Terrible, number one is dropping uh, its first issue from Doom Studios, A Vicious Circle, number one of three with some fantastic Lee Bermejo art written by Matson Tomlin, uh, who is the screenwriter for the latest Batman movie. Really excited about that, especially because Libra Mayo is going to be using several different styles. It's a time travel story, I guess, and each era is going to have its own different style. So really excited to see that. Grim by Stephanie Phillips returns with issue number six. We also have specs number two from writer David Boer, uh, over at DC. And again, you can listen to all these uh on our DC spotlight yesterday, Batgirls number 13, Batman Incorporated number three, Batman Spawn number one. We've got Danger Street number one of 12 from Tom King, Dark Crisis Big Bang number one, One Shot, Harley Quinn Uncovered, which is a, a book that just collects a bunch of Harley Quinn variants. Um, so if you're somebody that wishes you could afford the you know 125, 150, whatever variants, pick that up. There's a ton of fantastic covers in there. I Am Batman 16 um Superman son of kalel number 18 and i can't, and also riddler year 1 number 1 has a second printing so if you're uh if you missed out the first time around uh superman son of kalel comes to a close with uh number 18 and i'll have an interview with tom taylor about um some of the, the story points in that coming out tomorrow for 12 days of the comic source uh also Wildcats has its second issue and then wonder woman 794 is also out from DC Comics this week. Uh, over at IDW, Crashing number four is out. That story about a hospital where they won't treat anybody who's super powered. Uh, from Image Comics, in addition to books I talked about, Three Keys from David Messina has its third issue. Art Brute number one of four from the creative team that brings um, Ice Cream Man to stands is out. So if you're curious about that, I'm not an ice cream man reader, so I kind of put that one on the back burner. I haven't checked it out yet. Uh, also, speaking of ice cream man, ice cream man number thirty three is out. Nightclub number one of three from Mark Miller is out, and Two Graves number two, which uh, I always say give a book at least two or three issues. I and I did not understand what Two Graves number one was about at all but I didn't have time to read number two yet. So looking forward to checking that out and seeing if it starts to come together and to make some uh sen- some sense to me uh, at Marvel. In addition to the books I talked about, we have Deadpool number two. We've got a um, origins of Marvel comics, Marvel tales, number one, which gives a lot of, it looked like old sort of classic art, um, giving origins of Fantastic Four and Spider-Man and, and all that sort of thing. So if you're curious about that, definitely pick it up. Planet Hulk War- World Breaker, number two of five from writer Greg Pak. I didn't read the first issue. Um, I somehow I missed it. And so I didn't de- dive into the second issue either. Uh Savage Avengers, number eight from David Peppos. Uh And then over in the Star Wars corner, we've got Star Wars Bounty Hunters, number 29, Star Wars The Mandalorian, number six, uh, and that's it for Marvel books. Let's see if there's anything else to, over here that I want to mention um, from – no, I guess that's it. I thought that Valiant had something out this week, but I guess not. So anyway, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Uh, apologies. I've, I've missed the last couple of new comic book Wednesdays. i uh, been reading the books, but late, late into the night and then not having time to record. Basically, it's because my Marvel Press previews have been coming in super late. Like, I haven't been getting them until after nine o'clock. So it makes it uh, really challenging. But hopefully, in the new year, uh, we can get that rectified and we can keep bringing you these spoiler free new comic book day episodes. So, again, appreciate the support. Hope everyone's having a wonderful holiday season. Don't forget to check out the other uh, episodes that are coming out for 12 Days of the Comic Source. As always, we appreciate the support and we'll talk to you next time.